0: 1 Corinthians chapter 12, our text this morning is going to be verses 1 through 3, but I want to read all the way down to verse 11 so that we can kind of get the context of what we're going to be looking at today. The title of the sermon this morning is, Now Concerning Spiritual Gifts, and our key words for your worshipers in training are spiritual, demonic, and Holy Spirit. Follow along as I read chapter 12, verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For no one is given through the Spirit All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. As we see here this morning, as we begin in verse 1, we see Paul once again coming to a question that has been brought to his attention by the congregation. We see the, the formula that he has used previously now concerning We've seen this before. We started in the second part of the letter in chapter 7, verse 1, where Paul is saying, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, and then he goes on in chapter 7 to talk about issues of marriage, divorce, issues that surround the betrothed. We've seen in chapter 8 where Paul dealt with food offered to idols. This was a question that these saints had for Paul as it pertained to their activities around these cultic events. And as we will see later when we get into chapter 16, he will approach the question of collection for the saints where he says the same beginning now concerning the collection for the saints. And so Paul now here is beginning this section, actually it will be as we go through chapter 12, probably through 14, and some even say through 15, that Paul is going to be dealing with this issue of what he lays out this morning, spiritual gifts. But one thing I want us to understand is, and, and to go back as we remember that we've addressed the two several previous issues in chapter seven and eight that he talked about, that Paul was not really mainly giving them information whenever they, they they put these questions forth to him. It wasn't just information they needed. He went through these questions with them because they needed correction. They were confused. There was a lot of confusion in this church in the city of Corinth. There was great division. And so Paul, even though he is giving them information, he is also focusing on correction and a right understanding of the issues that they are looking into because they had caused great division amongst them. And so what is Paul dealing with? We come to chapter 12, and he, and he brings up this issue again now concerning. What is it that he's going to get into now? What is it that these people are struggling with, this, this issue that they struggle with, that he's going to deal with in chapter 12? Well, he says there in verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. Now, no doubt that we have all... we traverse these three chapters many times in our study of the Bible. This is a highly visited section of Scripture by the church today. There's great debate, uh, great disagreement about what is actually being said here in these verses. And so we look at that and we say, well, this section is going to be on spiritual gifts. That's what it says. And and you're right. That is what Paul is going to be dealing with here in in this portion of Scripture that we're going to be looking at. But I think it goes beyond that. It goes much deeper than that. The issue is much larger than just this issue of spiritual gifts. And I draw your attention to the word spiritual gifts there. How many in here have the New King James Bible or the King James Bible? Okay, if you notice there, or even the New American Standard Bible, you will notice there that the word gifts is either in italics or as it is in my Bible, it has a footnote attached to it that that shows you that, that that word was not in the original language. It was added by the translators. It's actually the Greek word, <laughs> those two words together, is the Greek word pneumatikos. You will probably notice in your Bible that it's italicized, and that's the reason why it is, because it was added. The word gifts was added. And so what does this word mean? It means literally spiritual. That's what it means, spiritual. It comes from the root word pneuma, which we've, heard and studied out many times is the word used to describe the Holy Spirit. That's where we get the root of that word is to describe the Holy Spirit. So this word means spiritual. It can be translated in two ways. It can be translated in a masculine gender or a neuter gender. And for those of you who don't don't study Greek a lot, which includes me, that's why I have these great tools in my library that help me to learn these things, um, what that means is whenever it's described in the masculine gender, it could be describing spiritual persons. It's talking about people. When it's described, when it's translated in the neuter way, it's actually describing spiritual things or gifts. And so those are the two ways that this word can be used. In 1 Corinthians 2.15 and in chapter 3, verse 1, and actually in chapter 14, verse 37, Paul uses the term in the masculine gender. And if you'll I'll read back in chapter 2, verse 15, and he says, The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. And so there it is talking about a person, a spiritual person. And so no doubt here, whenever the translators, the reason they added the word gifts there is because they assumed and they, they rightly assumed that he's talking about some uh, something, a spiritual thing, or in, in this particular instance, a gift. The translator decided that Paul meant to use the neuter gender and added the word gifts, and no doubt they were right. But many commentators believe that it is unnecessary to pick one and reject the other and that the two senses may be combined here, and I want to, I'm going to flesh that out further as we go through this. And so here Paul is introducing this issue of spiritual gifts this morning, here in chapter 12. And the term spirituals emphasizes the source of spiritual gifts given to the Christians. The root word charisma, which is actually the word that we see in verse 4, he says, now these are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, that's a different word. It's the word charisma. And so he's emphasizing there that gifts are manifestations of divine grace sovereignly bestowed and not obtained on the basis of merit. Consequently, spiritual gifts are not the benchmark of spirituality or of status in the church, but rather are an equipping for service is what Paul is getting at here as he goes on through the chapter. And so spirituality, and the reason why I think, why why does Paul, why doesn't he use the word charisma here in verse 1? Because spirituality in itself is related to this issue of spiritual gifts. But it's not in the way that the Corinthians suppose. The Corinthians, as we're going to see as we go on into chapter 12 and into chapter 14, suppose that certain spiritual gifts are the evidence of superior spirituality, while the absence of these gifts are proof of a superior inferiority. And Paul has a great deal to say about the relationship between spirituality and spiritual gifts. He begins by making sure his readers recognize that there are two kinds of spirituality. In verses 1 through 3, Paul distinguishes true spirituality from false in terms of its origin. False spirituality originates from the unclean spirits, and thus ultimately from Satan himself. And true spirituality originates from the Holy Spirit of God. And so Paul is setting forth this one main test that we're going to look at this morning to distinguish the Spirit of God from other spirits. And so Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, now concerning spirituals, now concerning spirituals, brothers... I do not want you to be uninformed. That's the answer to the issue here that Paul is laying out before them this morning is, you are uninformed. I do not want you to be uninformed. That they were ignorant. They, were, they did not have the correct awareness. And it was not an issue that they just needed more facts. A lot of times we think that that's all people need is they just need more information from the Bible. That's really not what Paul is saying here because they had the right facts. He had taught them very clearly on these issues. All these issues that we've dealt with up to this point and even on into the rest of the book, Paul has dealt with them in the past and taught them. But they were, they were taking that information and wrongly applying it. And so that's what Paul is getting to. You don't need more information. You need right application. And so now concerning this issue, Paul says, about spirituality in and of itself, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And so that's why it's important to understand that the issue here in this chapter and even in the broader context of going into chapter 12 and uh, 13 and 14 and even maybe into, verse, into chapter 15 is that the issue is not just about these tangible things like, like tongues or prophecy or healing, or these, these different gifts that Paul is laying out here. That's one part of it, but the bigger issue, the larger issue that Paul is trying to get us to understand here this morning is that this goes back to the overall problem that you have, Corinth, that I've been trying to straighten out for you from, my, from the very beginning is this wrong understanding of what a spiritual person is. A wrong, a, a, a wrong application of what it means to be a spiritual person. So when people today, and no doubt you're like me, when we come to chapter 12 and verse four, chapter 12 through 14, we just want to go straight to the meat, right? We want to go and say, what does this have to tell me about the gift of tongues? What does this have to tell me about the gift of prophecy? What does this have to tell me about women and their use of these gifts? And what does this have to tell me about, uh, about the gift of healing? And what does it have to tell me about whether these gifts are still in operation today or whether they are not? And so that's the things we focus on here, but still we have to under... And those things are true and important, and the questions are, are asked and answered in this, in this section of Scripture and many other places, but we have to understand that the bigger issue here is what it means to be a spiritual person. In the church today, we see all types of, of issues being dealt with, and we, and, and we see people that are caught up in emotionalism. We see people caught up in experientialism and mysticism and pragmatism and legalism and a few other isms that I'm not even going to answer. But but these things, these are the issues that we need to understand that if we have a right understanding of what it means to be a spiritual person, the way the Bible describes it, then we will have a better understanding of how to answer these questions that we have, but also be able to have a better understanding of being used by God, the Holy Spirit, to work in his church for the good of the church. And so Paul starts out here, because it has to be a broader subject here when we start out, because this is the introduction for this whole section here. You know, because if you read it and, and just take those three verses, it doesn't seem like it even fits in with the whole context, because... You know, like I said, when we get to chapter 12 and 14, we automatically go to the tongues issue and all these other things. But, but I mean, he's saying here, he, and in verse 2, he brings up their past. He brings up their pagan past and the things that they did when they were in their past and then they were in their, their, their pagan worship rituals in their past. But then he also, in verse 3, he brings up this issue of somebody cursing Jesus. And you say, what does that have to do with the issue of spiritual gifts? Well, it has a lot to do because we have to back up and look at the whole issue from, the big, from, from a big lens and see that the issues are not, as we come to this section of Scripture, is not just trying to understand what these gifts are and how we should use them and whether they're in operation or not. The issue is, am I being controlled by the Holy Spirit or am I not? And what is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit today and what is not? And so that's what Paul sets out this morning here to, in these first three verses to help us, to give us a greater understanding of what it means, what it means to be spiritual. And so he starts off and, and he goes to verse 2 and he's, and he's bringing them back to their past because he says, "...I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers." But then he starts verse 2, you know. So they already had some knowledge. They already had some things that they had tucked away in their understanding of things, but he's going to begin to question them and bring them out further. He says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. You were pagans. What does that mean? Well, it literally means nations. But we know in the broader scheme of that, when it's talking about, in the, in the, when it's attributed to people, and especially the kingdom of God, we understand that pagans are those who are outside of the kingdom of God. Those who are people who are unsaved, who are strangers to God, those who are lost. And so Paul is saying, you know that when you were lost, before God the Holy Spirit saved you and redeemed you, you know that when you were lost in those times past, (laughs) that you were led astray to mute idols. What does that mean? Well, it literally means to be deceived. And it's not something that they did on their own, because it's in the passive tense here. He says, you were led astray. You didn't didn't lead yourself astray. You were led astray. What does that mean to be led astray? And who led them astray? Well, to be led astray means to be under some influence. Some influence came along and grabbed you up when you were in your pagan past going through these rituals, these worship and religious rituals that you were a part of that characterizes who, characterized who you were in your past, they came along and led you astray. And where did they lead you to? To mute idols. These were the gods that they worshipped. We all know that, the, as we've documented, the city of Corinth had many gods, many false gods, many deities that they worshipped. And so that's where they were led astray too. But why does he call them mute? Because they just didn't know how to talk? Literally, it's because they were speechless. That's what it means to be mute, speechless. And what do we know about a false god? He's not there, right? We go back to chapter 7 and he was talking about there are some certain things that they knew about their, uh, about their gods. They, or chapter 8 rather, they did not exist, so it was okay to go and partake in the in those meals that were associated with those gods because, after all, they don't exist. And so Paul dealt with them then. He said, yes, you're right about that. They do not exist. They are nothing. There is no god but one. And so in their pagan past, in their rituals, in their religious worship in their past, they were bowing down and worshiping these false gods who did nothing for them. They were not there. They were simply figments of their imagination. They were statues and... And different things that they had created for themselves, they could do nothing for them. They could not speak back to them or provide blessings for them or do anything for them. And so they were mute. And we know this was happening because in chapter 10, we just looked at this when he says, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offered to demons and not to God. And he says, I do not want you to be participants with demons. And so there he's given us an understanding of what? It, how could Paul says you were led astray to these mute idols? Well, how can a dumb, a non-existent God lead someone astray? Well, in and of himself, he can't, right? Because he doesn't exist. But what Paul showed us back in chapter ten is that yes, there is nothing to that statue or that whatever it is that you're worshiping. He does not exist. But there is something behind that 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 is real that does exist and that is the demonic powers demonic spirits demons that is what has led you astray he said in your past as you worshiped these false gods as you bowed down and served them these demons that were behind that and used that led you astray he says however you were led they were being led, by, led astray by demons or demonic powers. And there were powerful experiences and supernatural experiences. There were different types of experiences, but they were real. They were very real. And they were very powerful. Sometimes they were hard to explain and hard to understand. What is going on there? I cannot understand that, but it's real. He it says, many different ways you were led astray. Well, to... History tells us a little bit so that we can understand what's what's actually going on here. The pagan cults of Greece and Rome were part of what were commonly called the mystery religions. By Paul's time, they had dominated the Near Eastern world for thousands of years and indirectly would dominate much of Western culture through the Middle Ages and even until today. The mystery religions had many forms and variations but a common source. (laughs) And we all know that that's the source of all false religions as we study the Bible. We can trace all the way back to the Tower of Babel. And where humanity was gathering together to build this tower to, to the heavens so that they could show forth their, their dominance over God Himself. And so what does God do? He scattered them across the earth by confusing their languages. And so that is the source of all false religion, the Tower of Babel. And that is why you see in Revelation chapter 17 where, where John is saying that the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, on whose forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of all harlots, and the abominations of the earth. So at the very beginning, all the way through to the end, we can, we can chart this issue of Babel and Babylon being at the very center of all false worship and all false religion. And so these mystery religions that the Corinthian city and all that area was involved in were part of this. Several pagan practices were especially influential in the church of Corinth. Perhaps the most important and certainly the most obvious was was what was called ecstasy, considered to be the highest expression of religious experience. Because it seemed supernatural and because it was dramatic, and often bizarre, the practice strongly appealed to the natural man. And because the Holy Spirit had performed many miraculous works in the apostolic age, some Corinthians confused those true wonders with the false wonders counterfeited in these ec- ecstatic paganistic rituals. John MacArthur, in his commentary, talks about this issue of ecstasy. He says, through frenzied, hypnotic chants and ceremonies, worshippers experienced semi-conscious, euphoric feelings of oneness with the god or goddess. Often the ceremony would be preceded by vigils and fastings and would even include drunkenness. Contemplation of sacred objects, whirling dances, fragrant incense, chants, and other such physical and psychological stimuli customarily was, were used to induce the ecstasy which would be in the form of -of out-of-body trance or an unrestrained sexual orgy. The trance is reflected in some forms of Hindu yoga in which a person becomes insensitive to pain and in the Buddhist goal of escaping into Nirvana, the divine nothingness. Sexual ecstasies were common in many ancient religions and were so much associated with Corinth that the term Corinthianized meant to indulge in extreme sexual immorality. A temple to Bacchus still stands in the ruins of Baalbek in modern Lebanon as a witness to the debauchery of the, mysteri- the, the mystery religions. End quote. And so, this was a very dramatic display. This was something that was that was supernatural. It was powerful. It was hard to understand. These things were happening, and so that begins to help you to understand what Paul is saying that many of you were led astray in your past. You were involved in these things. And many of these things, as I said a while ago, these mystery religions, they're involved in the occult today. And many, unfortunately, in the church have bought into some of these things. And I'm not labeling everything that we see today that may resemble this as coming from this source. I'm not doing that this morning. But I am saying that it is not hard to recognize that a lot of people today are trying to approach God through some sort of ecstatic, euphoric, emotional experience. It's very common today, as it has always been. Another type of, of mystical experience with the mystery of religions was called enthusiasm. It's a similar form of mystical experience, which often accompanied but was distinct from ecstasy. Enthusiasm involved mantic formulas, divination, revelatory dreams and visions, all of which are found in many pagan religions and philosophies today. This is a sort of communication where these people would, would communicate with God. And so we see that this stuff is, is very rampant in the world of the day of Paul as it is today. And so Paul is bringing this to their remembrance that you were involved with these things. So why does Paul bring it up, though? Why, why is it so important for them to remember these things? Because they had known powerful experiences in their past, and they were deceptive experiences. He's bringing these things up because these were things that they were attributing to a deity, to God. God. They had known powerful experiences that were not spiritual experiences in the true sense of the word spiritual. Remember, that word spiritual is attributed to the Holy Spirit. You will never see the word spiritual in that sense being attributed to the activities of demons. So when Paul talks about being a spiritual person, he's talking about being a person that is, in, that is being led by the Holy Spirit of God Himself and not some other spirit source. So for Paul here in 1 Corinthians, spiritual doesn't mean non-material. It doesn't just mean supernatural. Spiritual means from the Holy Spirit. If it is not from the Holy Spirit, it is not spiritual. It's demonic. It's natural, earthly, and fleshly. And so Paul is bringing this up to them to, to ask them the question... Can you recognize what is from the Holy Spirit and what is not? These these things that you were involved in were powerful. And they looked like they were some of the same things that the apostles did or some of the prophets in the Old Testament. All these great miracles that we've taught you, that Paul had taught the Corinthian church, they mirrored those things as far as their power and their magnificence. And so Paul is saying, don't be deceived. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is from the Spirit of God. And they were thinking, they were concluding that it was. And so now that begs the question, how do we know? How can we know that something is from the Spirit? We look at verse 3. He says, therefore I want you to understand... That no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. We have a negative and a positive side of a test here. It's a very basic test. We're going to see more tests as we go through these chapters of Paul showing forth the genuine as against the counterfeit. But here is the basic test that we'll look at this morning. There's a negative side and a positive side. The negative, the first part of chapter 3, he says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, (coughs) Jesus is accursed. In other words, the Holy Spirit doesn't author opposition to Christ. God is not in opposition with Himself. Notice that here in verse 3, that our Christology, our view of Jesus, our understanding of who Jesus is, (coughs) is set forth as the chief way to determine what is from the Holy Spirit. Now, scholars have long debated what is actually being said here in the first part of verse 3. You know, I mean, are, are we to understand that someone had actually done this in the Corinthian church? Had someone stood up and said, Jesus is accursed? In the name of the Holy Spirit, there's been put forth a few possibilities. The first is it possible that in the pagan rituals outside of the church, some were cursing Jesus. So Paul is comparing what happens in these pagan worship services to the true worshipers of God. In other words, the church, the, the Christianity had, become to, had begun to so in, in, infect the community in the region, it was beginning to spread out, and people were beginning to see what this this thing called Christianity was all about, these other religions were beginning to react to that by cursing Jesus. That was a possibility. It was not really in the church. It was outside the church being done in these other pagan rituals. A second possibility is that it had taken place within the church, but by an unbeliever who was present. No doubt, we've pro- if you've been in the church for any length of time, you've probably seen some strange things happen in the church. And so... Sometimes that may be by an unbeliever, sometimes it may not, but we all know that things happen. And so it could have been here that some, an unbeliever who was present at their worship services for some reason stood up and made this declaration. A third possibility is that it's just really hypothetical. Paul is just simply making the point that one of the ways you test the Spirit's work is whether or not someone, something or someone opposes Christ. And so he's using this hypothetical extreme here to show what is from from the Holy Spirit and what is not. So I don't know exactly which one actually happened in this particular instance, but whatever is meant here, let us not make the mistake that this is not something that is relevant to our time. Because we look at this and we say, who in the world would ever stand up in a worship service and say Jesus is a curse? The whole congregation would just pile on Him, right? <laughs> He'd be kicked and booted out the back door. Maybe with love, but... You know what I mean? We 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 look at this and say, "Well, who in the world would do this? Would this could this happen today? Could someone does someone stand up in the name of the Holy Spirit and say that Jesus is accursed?" Well, that begs a question: How much is being said today in the name of the Holy Spirit that actually does oppose Jesus? How much is going on today in the evangelical world that doesn't square? doesn't line up with the biblical Jesus. I want to give you a few examples. The largest church in the world is in Seoul, South Korea. It's pastored by a man named Paul Yonggi Cho. He recently changed his name to David Cho. But he claims to have received his call to preach from Jesus Christ Himself, who supposedly appeared to him dressed like a fireman. Cho has packaged his faith formulas under the label of fourth-dimensional power. He is well aware of his link to occultism, arguing that if Buddhist and yoga practitioners can accomplish their objectives through fourth-dimensional powers, then Christians should be able to accomplish much more by using the same means. This is the largest evangelical church in the world. He recently changed his name from Uh, from Paul to David. And the way he says it is that God showed him that Paul Cho had to die and David Cho was to be resurrected in his place. According to Cho, God himself came up with his new name. A man named E.W. Kenyon, he's dead now. He died back in the 40s. In a book called What Happened from the Cross to the Throne. And this man was very influential over some of your modern day well-known teachers that we see in the world he says jesus came so that man's spirit might be recreated man might reclaim the divine nature on the cross the plan of redemption merely began it was there that jesus took on the nature of satan lost his divinity became a mortal man and went to hell there he suffered torture at the hand of satan until god said enough Having kept the law of God perfectly, the man Jesus was declared to be illegally in hell. At that point, Jesus' spirit was recreated. He again had the divine nature. Jesus was then born again. The way way was then clear for man to have his spirit recreated, to receive the divine nature and to become as much an incarnation as Jesus was. Recreated men now have the nature of God, the ability of God. Creflo Dollar, in a sermon on December the 8th, 2002, says, Jesus did not come as God and was not perfect. If Jesus came as God, then why did God have to anoint him? If Jesus, see, God's already anointed. If Jesus came as God, then why did God have to anoint him? Jesus came as a man. That's why it was legal to anoint him. God doesn't need anointing. He is anointing. Jesus came as a man and at age 30, God is now getting ready to demonstrate to us and give us an example of what a man with an anointing can do. But but Jesus didn't show up perfect. He grew into His perfection. You know Jesus, one scripture in the Bible, He went on a journey. He was tired. You better hope God doesn't get tired. Isaiah 50 says, somewhere says, "...where we have a God who fainteth not, neither is weary." But Jesus did. If he came as God and he got tired, he says he sat down by the well because he was tired. Boy, we're in trouble. Benny Hinn, quote, on TBN, December 6, 1990, Christians are like little messiahs and little gods on the earth. Thus, say, I am a God-man. This spirit man within me is a god man. Say I'm born of heaven, a god man. I'm a god man. I am a sample of Jesus. I am a super being. Say it, say it. Who's a super being? I walk in the realm of the supernatural. Say it. You want to prosper? Money will be falling on you from left, right and center. God will begin to prosper you. For money always follows righteousness. Say after me, everything I ever want in me is is in me already. He, this also he said in another sermon, He, Jesus, who is righteous by choice, said, the only way I can stop sin is by me becoming it. I can't just stop it by letting it touch me. I in it must become one. Hear this, He who is the nature of God became the nature of Satan where he became sin. Kenneth Hagin, who's dead now, Christ's physical death on the cross was not enough to save us. The Christian is as much an incarnation as was Jesus of Nazareth. And I can promise you that is the tip of the iceberg of what is being proclaimed today in the name of the Holy Spirit about Jesus. And I know we're not called to pass unfair judgments, but brothers and sisters, that is heresy. That is heresy at the tallest order. There is no other way to say it. That is heretical. And this is being proclaimed by a number of false teachers in the world today, and they are filling up stadiums by the tens of thousands. People are coming to hear these things that are being said in the name of God, and they are false, and people are being deceived and destroyed every day. And so Paul lays out this test here. In, chapter, in verse 3, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse. He cannot. God will not author opposition to Himself. But then He offers the positive side of the test. And He says, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God does not author opposition to Himself, but the Spirit of God does author submission to the biblical Jesus. You want to know His work? You'll recognize His work where men and women love, worship, adore, submit to, follow the Jesus who is the real Jesus presented to us in Scripture. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And we know that to be true because the Bible tells us that no man can even come to God except by the rebirth by the Holy Spirit. And what is the rebirth for? To place us into the body of Christ so that we become a follower of Christ who does submit and adore and worship and love Him and who does not say false things about Him or lead others astray. And we know that men left to themselves are incapable of even loving Jesus or saying anything good about Jesus. Now to illustrate this, I would like for you to turn back to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, I'm going to look at verses 20 through 25. Matthew 26, verse 20. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He says, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 25, Judas, who would betray Him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Do you see? There's the twelve disciples sitting up there with the Lord on the night of His betrayal. He'd been with them for three years. They loved Him dearly. And 11 of them, after he says that one of you will betray me, began one by one to ask him, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Curios? Is it I, Peter, James, John, Matthew, on down the list, all of them are saying, is it I, Lord? But Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? Is it I, teacher? Jesus did not confess, or Judas did not confess Jesus' lordship. Now, make no mistake; Jesus, Judas could have said the word "Lord" here and still have been lost. But you see here in the hearts of these men where their loyalties lay. With the eleven, they loved and adored and worshipped Jesus because he was their Lord. But Judas. The son of perdition did not. And he did not confess Him as Lord. He was just a teacher. He was just a good man. So that, asks, that, that begs the question for us, is that who do we think Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? Is He a good man? Is He a good teacher? Is He a prophet sent from God? Or is He Lord? That question has eternal significance. It had eternal significance for Judas and he failed the test. But who do you say Jesus is? Do you say he is Lord? Now make no mistake it's not about just the words itself. You know when when Paul says no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. An unbeliever can mouth the words Jesus is Lord. We see in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of My Father in heaven. On that day many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? Cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. These people called Him Lord. They may even have been deceived that He was their Lord, but He was not because they were not doing the will of His Father. They were not obedient. They did not have faith. And so it's not about mouthing the words. It's about confession of your life. What does your life tell you? Does the, does the manner in which your life tell you that you have a Lord? All of us have a Lord. Do you know that? We all have someone that we, that we answer to, that we look to. It's either Jesus Christ or it's some other form, usually ourselves, that we worship. And so Paul is setting forth a test here for us this morning to determine what, is it to, what does it mean to be a spiritual person? Well, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus of Nazareth to you? Is He your Lord? Is He your Savior? If He is not, then He will be your judge. And so that is the issue before us as we launch into this chapter, as we begin to ask, ask and answer the questions about spiritual gifts and about what, what this gift does and what that gift does and, and what this doesn't do and whether this is still in play this, today. We have to keep in the back of our mind as we go through any of these things, we're, we're talking about what it means to be a spiritual person. And so that's, that's the question for us as a church is that are we spiritual people? Are we controlled by the Holy Spirit? Do we confess Jesus is Lord, not just by our mouths, but with our life? Is our walk a testimony of that confession that Jesus is Lord? Because if it is, then we know that that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if it's not, then it is not. It is by some other spirit. so that is our question. The issue here for us as we leave today is to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a spiritual person? And can we recognize what is from the Holy Spirit and what is not? Great charity must be used here as we debate these subjects. The church today is fractured over these issues. Denominations are formed because of these issues. but i hope that at the end of the day as we as as we debate these things that we are above all else seeking to be true to the word unity that is not true to the word is not unity it's just not it's not the unity god's after god is after charity and love and that's why we see chapter 13 in the midst of these, two, these chapters that's talking about gifts. Why does Paul plop down in the middle of his whole discussion this issue on love? So he'd give us a formula to say to weddings? No. Chapter 13 has relevance to a married couple who is just setting out on their life. But it, it was put there to show what a spiritual person is supposed to be. And the main thing that characterizes a spiritual person is love love for each other. Love for God that manifests itself in love for each other. And so that is, our, that is our task before us this morning, is that are we striving to be spiritual? It's not something that we can usher in by our greater effort. It's something that must be brought on by the Holy Spirit. And so the, answer, the question again is, is not necessarily are we striving for that, is that, are we being controlled by the Spirit? That's the question. When you're controlled by the Spirit, you will love, worship, adore, and serve the Lord of the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Father, because we know that left to ourselves, we will follow all of these false ideas of worship. So I pray, God, for discernment for every one of us, Father. And we know that discernment can only come by greater understanding of Your Word. So I pray, God, that we would be a people of Your Word, and that we would rest on Your Word and let Your Word have the final authority over our lives. And let us, Father, all confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In His name we pray, amen.